This podcast sponsored by Prime Super, a leading industry super fund specialising in the health and aged care sector. Go to primesuper.com.au to see what we can do for you. Paul Davis is a physicist, writer and broadcaster and a professor at Arizona State University, to name but a few titles of his. Paul joins us now. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, You recently wrote a piece for The Monthly entitled A New Theory of Cancer. But first off, by trade, as I said, you are primarily a theoretical physicist. How did you come to ponder the puzzle that is cancer? I would never have believed uh, 15 years ago if you told me I would get engaged in cancer research uh, that this could possibly happen. And it wouldn't have happened were it not for a phone call completely out of the blue uh, from a woman called Anna Barker, who was then deputy director of the National Cancer Institute in the United States. Uh, I've been working for the last 12 years at Arizona State University, and she knew of the research center that I had set up called the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. Uh, And what we do in the Beyond Center is we reconceptualize things. We rethink deep scientific puzzles sort of from the bottom up. And she thought that maybe the time had come to do that for cancer. And what she said to me was, uh, you physicists seem really clever at solving complex problems. You've figured out what's going on inside atoms and black holes and things like that. Could you uh, figure out what's going on with cancer? And my reply, I remember it very well, uh, was, well, uh, I suppose so, but I know nothing about cancer. And she said, well, that doesn't matter. (laughs) And and that's how it all began. Uh, It culminated in 12 centers for physical science and oncology Uh, that the National Cancer Institute were funded uh, for a period of five years, and then there's a subsequent program. uh, And I ended up running the one at Arizona State University. It involved about six projects in total and maybe about 30 people in total and collaborations with the Mayo Clinic and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. So we were dealing with real oncologists. This wasn't just a bunch of armchair theorists, uh, you know, doing something for fun. Uh, We had tissue samples and uh, cell cultures, and we're doing uh, experiments on the the physical properties of tumors and cancer cells. So that was part of it. But my real love was addressing the fundamental question. What is cancer? Mm -hmm. Why does it exist? How does it fit into the great story of life on Earth. Uh, so that is treating cancer as a biological phenomenon and not as a medical condition uh, to be conquered. So you, like you say, you've decided to look at cancer from kind of outside of the oncological box, if you will. And you've, in your piece, you've said you've tried to go back and understand it from an evolutionary standpoint. Can you expand on this a bit? Well, it occurred to me right at the outset when I was thinking about the nature of cancer uh, that something that is so stubborn, so hard to treat, uh, is uh, unlikely to be just some sort of recent aberration. It looks like it's deeply integrated into the nature of multicellular life. Uh, It's part of, uh, if you like, the whole sort of great life program. And uh, evidence for this soon came to my attention because uh, people, of course, dwell on human cancers, but cancers are found pretty much right across the tree of life. 
uh, multicellular life. So uh, all mammals, birds, insects, fish, uh, and uh, even plants and fungi and corals, they all have cancer or cancer-like phenomena. And so if you just take an evolutionary perspective and ask, well, when did all these species intersect in a common ancestor, you're basically going back to the origin of multicellularity itself, uh, which uh, was occurred several times independently between about one and a half billion years ago and 600 million years ago. So somewhere in that window, uh, the, uh, if you like, the genetic apparatus or the program that runs cancer or drives cancer got incorporated uh, into the genomes of pretty much all of the organisms. So it's, it's come, something that comes with multicellularity. And really that's not such a uh, heretical idea when you stop to think about it because cancer is a disease of bodies and uh, bodies didn't exist before multicellularity. And when you think about the way life is done in multicellular organisms, uh, there, there has to be uh, cooperation between the individual cells in your body, what are called somatic cells, uh, and the body as a whole. The uh, project of a multicellular organism is to get its genes into the next generation, and those genes are uh, conveyed through the germline, like the sperm and eggs, uh, but the rest of the body is a sort of vehicle for that. Uh, but the DNA in all of your cells is all the same. Uh, it can all make a complete organism. It's all got the plan for the whole thing. Uh, but the somatic cells uh, have to cooperate, and they, they do divide uh, maybe 30 or 40 times, something like that. Uh, but then uh, they, they reach a point where uh, the body says, uh, that's enough, and then they commit suicide, a process called apoptosis. So the price that... Uh, the, the cells, the somatic cells of our bodies pay uh, for being part of this sort of collective uh, project in multicellular organisms is, is uh, suicide, cell death. Uh, and cancer is, of course, um, a breaking of that contract between the individual cells and the body as a whole. It's where somatic cells say, well, I know I'm supposed to just divide when I'm given instructions, and then I'm supposed to commit suicide uh, when uh, the time comes, but I'm going to defy that and uh, break out on my own and make a bid for immortality as uh, life was two billion years ago. So it's a reversion or a throwback to a more primitive uh, and in many cases uh, pre-multicellular type of, of life form. So. So that's the basic idea, and I, mm -hmm. and I think many oncologists are, are, are sort of basically on board with the notion that cancer is something like a throwback or a reversion uh, to a, sim simple, a simpler state or even a unicellular state, because before multicellular life, uh, the individual cells were in effect immortal. So if you think of a bacterium, it just splits and splits and splits, goes on forever. Uh, and so individual cells have an immortality built into them. It's just in a multicellular organism, you don't want that immortality to come out. But cancer is a, is a bid for immortality. The, the cells won't undergo apoptosis. They won't die 
when they're instructed to, they just go on multiplying and multiplying, like the good old days before multicellular life. And I think those general ideas, although oncologists tend not to think about evolution at all, um, they're fairly comfortable with that general notion. But mm-hmm. so, some of the things we then went on to deduce from that are more controversial, but nevertheless, I think, uh, have great value. And so where you started to break away from maybe traditional oncology and the somatic mutation theories, uh, you, your problem was the ability the, for that, them theories to predict cancer. And so you and your colleagues looked at the age of genes as a means of cancer prediction. Yes, I think this was our big departure because having uh, decided that cancer, uh, the story of cancer is one with very deep evolutionary roots going back not just years, but uh, hundreds of millions or even billions of years, uh, that the, um, there's a new science which goes by the frightening name of uh, phylostratigraphy. Uh, and what this basically means is you can uh, date genes. If you pick your favorite gene and tell me, then my colleagues can look up in some horrendous uh, database that uh, compares the homologues of, uh, of that gene across many species. So you might think, well, you've got you know, a gene for hair color or something, but you'll find uh, similar genes in other animals, and then if you go further back, you'll find um, that, that there are maybe genes quite close to that in insects. And, uh, and so you can, you can put a, an age on any gene. Now, you can uh, look at oncogenes, uh, and these are the genes responsible for driving cancer, and they're catalogs of these things that have been drawn up in recent years. And you can ask, well, how old are those genes, and what are they supposed to be doing? Uh, they're giving people cancer, but these are not genes that are, are, they all have a, you know, a function. Uh, you can ask, what is that function? Uh, and so we predicted uh, that um, when you look at, uh, for example, the genes driving cancer, and the genes that are suppressing cancer, because uh, there are <coughs> genes that the body has evolved in order to do that, that the tumor suppressor genes ought to be more recently evolved, because uh, tumors have only been a feature of life in the last billion years or so, so they ought to be more recently evolved. But the, the genes that are driving cancer ought to be more ancient. And so that was our first prediction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there have been a lot of studies, uh, fortunately, some of, some of them uh, here in Australia. David Good and his colleagues uh, at the Peter Mac Center in Melbourne have uh, done some really excellent work looking not just at individual oncogenes, but networks of genes uh, and uh, looking to see in tumors whether uh, these genes are um, more, uh, what type of genes are more active and what uh, genes are suppressed. Uh, what they found is that the genes which are uh, responsible for the unicellular features of cells and those responsible for the multicellular features of cells uh, somehow decouple from each other as the tumor progresses. So um, it's not, it seems that the story is not that uh, a tumor is just a direct throwback to a primitive multicellular state or a a unicellular state. It's more nuanced than that, but it is um, definitely uh, something in the right direction. And the whole gene story, the ages of genes, is clearly a very relevant factor here. Mm -hmm. And I know this is at the theoretical stage, but there are other ideas as to how these theories would be used practically in screening? 
Yes. So one of the things that we discovered at Arizona State University, and I must give credit to my geneticist colleague, uh, Kimberly Bussey, for this, uh, is um, what, what she did was uh, take a list of uh, oncogenes uh, provided by uh, the Sanger Center, uh, and uh, she then uh, asked not just about the ages of the genes, but in addition to that, what was their function? Uh, are, are, do they cluster around certain uh, properties? Uh, and what she found uh, was sort of set of these oncogenes are just like, uh, the technical term is homologs, just like the genes you find in bacteria uh, that can uh, turn up the mutation rates of bacteria when they're under stress. So this is a well-known phenomenon. If you starve bacteria, uh, so if they're normal, like glucose, but if you deprive them of glucose, they can metabolize other sugars, um, and uh, they will uh, quite deliberately turn up their rates of mutation uh, in order to hopefully find one that will enable them to metabolize the other sources of food. It's often called an SOS response, and it's been much studied. So the mutation rate is actually not just God-given. It's, it's partially under the control of organisms. They can tune their own mutation rates. And uh, lo and behold, uh, ca cancer, a subset of cancer genes has that property of being just like the genes in bacteria, of turning up the mutation rate. Now, one of the hallmarks of cancer is its rapid rate of mutation. That's what makes it so hard uh, to treat uh, with chemotherapy because it just uh, evolves resistance to any particular drug. Uh, and so the discovery that this is a sort of self-inflicted process, that the, um, the mode of, uh, of mutation uh, is the same, actually. Uh, when you look at the pattern of mutations in cancer cells uh, and the pattern of mutation in bacterial cells in quite some detail, they really do match up. So this is a very ancient stress response. Uh, we think that the bacteria have been doing this pretty much since the origin of life, three and a half uh, billion years ago. And the, the reason for that is that the uh, cell proliferation, that is just multiplying, is the most ancient property of life, and it's therefore likely to be the most deeply protected uh, and uh, it's, if you're starving and you increase the mutation rate, that is uh, an obvious survival mechanism, very ancient one. Uh, and that seems to be deeply embedded in all cells. And so the therapeutic aspects of this are, are pretty obvious, that um, the more stressed a cell feels, the more likely it is to invoke this SOS response. Uh, and so the standard of practice in cancer treatment in many cases, not all, tends to be maximum tolerable dose. Uh, you flood the patient uh, with uh, toxin in the hope that the cancer dies before the patient dies, to put it crudely. Um, what we think is that uh, we should get away from that, that that's likely to be counterproductive because that elevation of stress on the cancer cell is much more likely uh, to trigger this SOS response, and then it's going to mutate its way around the problem, and, uh, uh, and this is, of course, very familiar. That's exactly what actually happens. So uh, what we would like to see is um, cancer uh, that is, uh, instead of trying to annihilate it, uh, we try to live with it. That is, that we 
um, that you use uh, therapeutic agents, but you use them uh, in the lowest doses that you can hold the cancer in check. And this is uh, rather a psychological issue, I have to say, that I think many people uh, react so badly to cancer. They feel, I've got cancer, I want every cancer cell in my body eradicated. Mm -hmm. Well, that's simply impossible. I think if people realize that we're, uh, anybody my age anyway, living with cancer all the time, uh, and the body is coping with it by its own mechanisms perfectly well, uh, and the, uh, the idea that you must be cancer-free is a nonsense anyway. If we get used to the idea that cancer is just a normal part of uh, the aging process, so you have cancers in you, most of them are managed uh, okay, but, but if, if one of them uh, then breaks out and the body's not coping with it well, uh, we help the body to, uh, to maintain it and treat it as a chronic disease and not as something that we just eradicate with beam weapons and toxins and anything in the armory. I have to get away from that type of thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. So that would, that would include a whole kind of educational approach in the way we, we even see cancer in society, right? It, it, it is, uh, because I think many people uh, react. It's, it's got a bad press, cancer as a disease. Uh, many people react uh, really badly when they're diagnosed with cancer, uh, and they want everything done uh, to try and get rid of it. And it's very understandable that people should have this sort of uh, attitude. Um, and uh, it's, it's really a very difficult thing to change. Now, when you look at the statistics about cancer over-treatment, they're really quite horrific. And so there are some women who will rush to have double mastectomies on the basis of a cancer diagnosis where the, uh, the lesion that has been identified uh, may never cause a medical problem. Uh, that uh, There's a class of uh, early-stage breast cancers where 75% of cases it would never cause a problem. The, the difficulty is that you don't know whether you're in the 75% or the 25%, and so... Uh, you know, there is this uh, feeling, well, you, you just sort of do the maximum you can. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I do think that we have to uh, to get over that idea that, um, that, that cancers have to be totally and completely eliminated uh, as opposed to just managed. We manage all sorts of other diseases, uh, diabetes, for example, uh, and... Uh, we don't think that we have to eradicate that. So uh, we have to get, get to the point of view where we can live with the cancer uh, and not uh, try to uh, destroy it. Now, that won't always work. There are some cancers which quite simply will uh, kill you in pretty short order. And then the only way is uh, treatment is to sort of, um, you know, put um, a, a rearguard action against the inevitable. I'm not, not saying that we should adopt this um, more this gentler approach with all cancers, but mm-hmm. we must be mindful of the fact that the treatment itself uh, is often brutal and can can sometimes aggravate the cancer or generate secondary cancers as a result of that. And, and the oncologists I work with said that they're seeing many cases now of people coming back with completely different cancers, uh, in effect caused by the uh, treatment of the first one. Mm-hmm. So something has to change. Uh, interestingly, one of the ideas for treatment in the piece you wrote, and I think it was interesting maybe because it was the simplest maybe for me to understand, but also it kind of made a lot of sense, was treating cancer potentially with uh, the introduction of other viruses. 
Yes. So now this is an interesting story here uh, that um, about 100 years ago, an American uh, physician, uh, William Coley, noticed that uh, the cancers, some cancers would spontaneously vanish if the patient uh, got an infectious disease. Uh, and also looked back through historical records and found that this was more common before the era of sterilization. Because, of course, if you have a cancer patient and you operate and you sterilize your equipment, as would normally be done, then a very few people would get infectious diseases. But if they did, there were these cases where the cancer went away. And so he uh, got to deliberately infecting his cancer patients with, uh, uh, with a particular disease. And uh, he, um, the, and this sort of pioneering work, I suppose, was regarded as barbaric anyway. Uh, it was discontinued. Um, but uh, more recently, uh, the uh, great hope in cancer treatment at the moment seems to be immunotherapy, where you try to boost the body's own immune system uh, to take care of the cancer. And part of the job of the immune system is to, um, is to manage the cancer that is naturally present in all of us, as I was saying earlier. Uh, and if you can uh, somehow supercharge it, uh, then maybe it can get rid of uh, some, uh, you know, quite uh, cancer has progressed to a later stage. Uh, and there's a lot that is being discussed about that at the moment. Now, the, the standard explanation for Coley's results is that the infection uh, boosted the immune system and that the cancer was sort of knocked off as collateral damage. But we think that at least part of the story is that the uh, cancer tumors themselves are uh, more susceptible to infection than the healthy tissues. And part of the reason for that is one of the hallmarks of cancer is it decouples from the body's immune system. Uh, it can screen the immune system out, uh, and uh, that's one of the ways it, it gets around uh, the uh, immune system trying to attack it. Uh, and so uh, we feel the cancer can't have it both ways. If it's going to uh, disconnect, from the immune system, it can't expect the immune system to come to its aid uh, if it's infected. So we think that tumors are actually more vulnerable to infections than the uh, healthy part of the body. Uh, and so uh, the, this is another way to interpret Cody's experiments, and that we should think very seriously about uh, e injecting tumor tissue with um, with a variety, I mean, it could be, uh, it doesn't have to be uh, bacteria, it could be viruses, uh, could even be uh, fungal agents, but the point being that the uh, tumors themselves are, uh, are more vulnerable to disease. So that, that gives another therapeutic line of attack that I think is worth investigating. And a few people do seem to be... Um, producing results sort of around those ideas, uh, mm -hmm. but this is very much in its early stages. Well, that was going to be my next question. You know, these uh, implications for treatment we've just discussed, have, have there been many trials or uh, actively, un, you know, been undertaken at the minute? Um, they, there haven't been very many trials. There have been some that have been done uh, where the, um, the, in 
infectious agent has been um, uh, neutralized, and so a bit, bit like when you have um, uh, a vaccination, it's an attenuated uh, virus, for example. Um, but there are some clinical trials being planned uh, at Arizona State University where we have a, a, a cancer and evolution center, which is funded by the National Cancer Institute. Uh, and so there are plans to uh, do something like that uh, at ASU. Mm-hmm. So I guess kind of to sum up... From what I'm reading, I mean, we a lot of people talk, and you mention it in the piece, about kind of the war on cancer and trying to eradicate cancer. But from what I'm reading, it would see, in, in your piece, it would seem pretty egotistical to think that we could do that. Um, what are the possible future implications from your theories for the health system and our approach to cancer? Uh, I think it's unrealistic uh, to, to expect there to be a cure for cancer. I call this the lure of the cure. Uh, the idea that there's a pill that will make it go away, uh, some sort of general purpose uh, cancer pill, I think is uh, a complete waste of time and money. We're not going to ever achieve that. Now, um, there have been some success stories with individual cancers, and it would be wrong to belittle that. Uh, childhood leukemia, for example, is largely uh, conquered, if we're going to use that uh, sort of military expression. Um, but I think in the vast majority of cancers, we have to get to this point of view that they should be uh, managed rather than eradicated. Uh, I'm a fan of looking for uh, ways of stabilizing cancer other than uh, chemical toxins, the usual chemotherapy. Um, so one idea that I have been interested in, but again, there have been no real clinical trials, is hyperbaric oxygen therapy. The point here is that uh, cancer, in its reversion to this more primitive uh, phenotype, uh, it uh, switches to a different form of metabolism. So healthy cells uh, use a process called oxidative phosphorylation to get their energy. Uh, Cancer cells use a different uh, mechanism. Uh, It's called glycolysis. It takes sugar and uh, it's not very energy efficient, but it's good at making biomass. So if the name of the game is more bulk, uh, which is what tumors do, uh, but they need less energy, then this um, glycolysis uh, is a good way to go. It's often called fermentation as well, because it's the same process. Uh, And um, so in a nutshell, uh, healthy cells, like uh, lots of oxygen, cancer cells can work in very low levels of oxygen, Uh, a bit like it was on planet Earth uh, two billion years ago. There was not much oxygen in the atmosphere. Uh, And so um, they like like lots of sugar and not much oxygen. And so the plan is you, uh, to hold them in check, you turn this around the other way. You deprive the sugar, turn off the sugar uh, through diet, Uh, and turn up the oxygen through hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is available for use uh, for many conditions. So this is is something uh, which is already familiar in medical treatment. Uh, You put the patient in the chamber of the two atmospheres, pure oxygen, half an hour or something. Uh, So that's done uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, So we think combined with uh, something like a ketogenic diet, uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy could... 
um, stabilize tumors. And that's all you need to do. I should uh, emphasize once again, you don't have to eradicate them. Uh, so long as the tumors don't spread, or if they spread that they <clears throat> don't cause problems in the secondary site, so long as it's stable, uh, what more could you want? Because um, very few tumors actually cause uh, medical problems in their own right. Obviously, if they're in the brain or uh, pressing against some vital part, but most tumors sit in the body, uh, often undetected, uh, and, and don't really cause too many problems. Um, and so uh, if we could get to a regime like that that didn't involve taking uh, powerful drugs, then I think uh, that, would, that would be wonderful. It's very hard, though, I should say, just the way that the medical system works worldwide, um, to get much traction behind uh, something that doesn't involve uh, a new chemical agent or something that uh, you know, a drug company can make. Um, oxygen is uh, pretty much free. Uh, you can change your diet for nothing. Uh, and so what I'm advocating here uh, is, is not anything that's likely to make any money. Uh, and so then under those circumstances, it's very hard to get anyone to pay for a clinical trial uh, because the, the only reason people will do clinical trials is if there's likely to be a large profit at the end of it. Why else would anybody spend 100 million, 200 million uh, US dollars on a, on a clinical trial unless uh, there's going to be a payoff at the end of it? And so uh, the, the people who have been doing this hyperbaric oxygen therapy simply say, well, no one will pay for us to convince the, the, the public that this uh, is efficacious. Uh, it's a sad state of affairs. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Wow. That was, um, I think that's fascinating <laughs> to be honest, that last point, especially, um, I think I've got loads here. Um, I really, I've taken up loads of your time. I, I really appreciate you, um, taking the time to talk to me. Well, I, I, it's been my pleasure. I, this is dear to my heart. This is yeah. a subject I've, uh, come into, uh, later on in my career by invitation. Uh, I'm delighted if I can make a contribution that will have a lasting effect and uh, the Holy Grail is always uh, a therapeutic effect. Uh, if I could just uh, extend somebody's life uh, on average by, um, uh, you know, a few months or years as a result of this work, uh, then what more could one want from a scientific career? Paul, I'd like to thank you for joining us and good luck with your future research. Well, thank you. I'm waiting for the next great challenge.